0: Well, if you're just joining us, uh, we are going through a series all semester and really all year long called Roots and Relationships. And it's starting with this idea of what the good life is. What is a good or blessed life, a life that we might say is whole and holy and healthy and complete? Jesus said, I came to give you life and life to the fullest. We're asking, what does that look like? How do we get that? Uh, I've had opportunity this week to tell my story to a few folks, um, and I thought it would be fitting to actually share this one chapter uh, of my story with you all tonight, kind of get things started. Some of you may or may not know this, but I was not a Christian in college. Um, uh, I went to the University of Colorado in Boulder. Uh, I wasn't a Christian. Uh, I was a wannabe Buddhist who uh, converted to atheism after spending about five months uh, in Bangladesh. I had just uh, finished college um, and I spent a year of service with AmeriCorps uh, in the Bay Area. I worked with low income entrepreneurs. And then I went to Bangladesh to learn about microfinance. Essentially, I was trying to help women start businesses so they could lift their families out of poverty. I encountered a lot of suffering in Bangladesh and I suffered a lot too. For one, I was lonely, I was far away from home, then I was sick. Uh, pollution in Dhaka, the capital, was so bad that my throat uh, began to swell shut. Uh, I walked through sewage uh, in the slums just about every day where I picked up worms through my feet, and those worms lodged themselves in my intestines and they started to turn my stomach sort of inside out. I lost weight. I lost hope. Uh, in his memoir, Green Lights, Matthew McConaughey says, In the art of living, I'll take an experienced C over an ignorant A any day. I think he was talking about me. Right? I was the ignorant A. I had a lot of answers from my books. I had a chip on my shoulder. But Bangladesh took me down a notch or 12. In Bangladesh I became disenchanted with Buddhism and I became disillusioned with myself. I didn't like what I saw in the world out there. But i didn't like what i saw in the mirror either i didn't like what i saw inside of my own heart everything was tainted and i didn't see a solution i wasn't a christian and now i wasn't a buddhist either and so i guess you could say i converted to atheism if that makes any sense if you convert to atheism but i found myself just an atheist not a christian not a buddhist an atheist um If there wasn't a God, if there's no judge, if there's no heaven, there's no hell, if there's no meaning and no purpose, well, I just ran all of their thoughts to their logical conclusion. If this is all that we have got, if it's just this life and then nothing more, well, then we ought to do whatever makes us feel good. We ought to run away from suffering and not towards it. We ought to live a life that is painless and as pleasurable as possible. And some, you got to get the hell out of Bangladesh. (laughs) right? Don't stay there. And so I did. I moved back to the States. A romantic relationship that I was in, it ended. She said, you're not the same person anymore, which was true. And so I packed up my things. I left New York City and I moved into my mom's basement. And there, as I was licking my wounds and trying to figure out what to do with my life, I got an invitation to go to Africa, of all places, and to be part of a development team that was going to minister to former child, soldier, former child soldiers in northern Uganda and children stuck in the slums. Now, I'd never been to Africa before, but this trip was all expenses paid and it got me out of my mom's basement. So I said, sure, right, let's go. Well, as soon as I arrived in Africa, I met, of course, people who were moving towards suffering and not away from it so cynically, I asked, why are you doing this? Because it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me anymore, you know, after my change of heart in Bangladesh. Why are you doing this? Why are you moving towards slums? Why are you moving your family to a war zone? And time and again, the answer that I was given was I'm doing for others what I feel God has done for me. Now, that didn't make any sense to me, so I pressed in, like, what are you talking about? They're ta-, and they started to tell me about a God who left his comfort zone, and he took on flesh, and he moved into the neighborhood, as it were, right, to alleviate suffering, of course, right, talking about Jesus. Well, I dismissed this out of hand. I thought that was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. I thought that was stupid. But as I spent time with these folks, I didn't think they were stupid. In fact, I thought they were really smart and sensitive. And courageous, and compassionate, and kind. But what struck, me, uh, what struck me most about these folks that I was with was their ability to laugh and to cry at the same time, because I had lost the ability to do either of those. Right? As I looked out at the world, all I saw was death and decay, and so I had lost the ability to laugh. But the darkness and the death and the decay had also hardened me, so I had lost the ability to cry. But these people were seeing the same suffering that I was seeing. And they were experiencing the same things that I was experiencing. Yet they had retained their ability to laugh and to cry. And that was mysterious to me. That was something that was strange and odd. As I spent time with them, it just seemed to me that their lives was full and mine was thin. They were living life in technicolor and mine was sort of lived in the grayscale and black and white. Like they were living uh, uh, with full humanity. And experiencing all of the emotions, and mine was diminished. I tell you all of this because when I think about the good life, when I think about life to the fullest, life as it was meant to be lived, I think of these African Christians. You see, the good life is not one that is able to avoid suffering The good life or the full life is one that is fruitful in the midst of It's fruitful in the face of it. See, all year long we're talking about what the good life is and how we get it. And Jesus, as I mentioned, said, I've come to give you life to the fullest. A life that is whole and holy and healthy and complete. And my introduction to that life was really in Africa. And I've encountered folks in the States who embody the same sorts of traits, right? The good life. What Africans and Americans, right, those who've embodied this for me, what they all have in common is this. They are all open and receptive to God's word. They're all rooted and connected to Jesus. And they're all living the Christian life in community. Right? They're not trying to do it by themselves, but they have people around them who can sort of take the weeds off, as it were. And because they are these, because they're receptive, rooted, and in relationship with others, they're also bearing good fruit. Right? You come into contact with them, and you'll inevitably taste and see that God is good. And you're going to want some of what they've got, and what they've got is Jesus. When I think of the good life, I think of these people, right? Their faces come to mind, and I think of trees. I think of bonsai trees, and I think of juniper trees, and I think of the tree that we are introduced uh, to here in Psalm 1. You can look at it again in that handout. It's a tree that's planted by water, and its roots are running down to the streams, and its leaves, right up here, they're green and they're good, and the fruit, there's fruit on the branches, even in times of stress and suffering. Now I want this kind of life, a life that is depicted for us here, a life that was shown to me overseas, life to the fullest, life that it was meant to be. And I want this life for you too, as your pastor, as a campus pastor here at the University of Vermont as someone who's sowing like gospel seed on this campus, this is what I hope takes root in your life. Central to these visions, central to this vision in Psalm one, is this idea of roots. If you and I are going to live the good life, we need roots. So for the next five slash six weeks, I wanna flush that out and I wanna get real practical. How do we put down deep roots? How do we lay a foundation for this life or build a basement when in actuality it's much more dynamic than that? Like how do we have this thing that is living and breathing that anchors us in times of trouble and brings in new life? Like how do we have that? And not only how do we have it, but what does a rooted life look like in and out of the seasons through times of joy and sorrow and anger and confusion and love and thanksgiving? How do we put it down? What does it look like? We're going to spend five, six weeks asking and answering those questions. Well, as we get started and by way of summary, let's make sure we know what roots are and what they do. Roots are hidden support systems, right? That anchor a tree to the ground, right? They keep it from tipping over, they give it support. But that's not all that roots do. Roots don't just support, right, the tree above it, they sustain it. They draw in nutrients and water, they give the tree life, they help it bear fruit. Roots support and they sustain, they ground and they make. They fix in place, and they make fruit. You get the idea. Well, metaphorically, but also somewhat literally, like practically speaking, what does that look like for you and me? Because we're not trees, right? We're not plants. So what does it mean for us, human beings, to have roots? Well, as we said a couple weeks ago, having roots means having this hidden support system. It means having a deep and intimate personal relationship with God. It means having a prayer life, right? Like this hidden life with God. Having a hidden life with God doesn't mean hiding your faith. If you have roots, people are inevitably going to taste good fruit, but they don't taste your roots. They, don't, they taste fruit. They don't taste roots. Your roots is your hidden support system. Your roots is this hidden life with God. It's this relationship between you and him. Now, trust me, you're going to need other people in your life that are going to help sort of bear this fruit out. But foundationally, you need to be connected to him. You need to be connected to God. Well, how? How do you get connected to God and how do you stay connected to him through thick and thin and in good times and in bad? How do you get his life and his word inside of you? These are the questions that Psalm 1 and Luke 11 help answer. I want you to take a, a look again at Psalm 1. Okay? Just have it there before you. In Psalm 1, The blessed man, the blessed woman, it's just another way of saying, right? The good life, right? This is a life that prospers, that succeeds. The leaf doesn't wither, but is always green. And it's always good. And it's always fruitful. And the reason why is because it's planted by streams of water. The implication being, This is a tree that has good roots. It knows where life is found, and it knows how to get that life inside. It's not just out there, but it's now in here. You all tracking? Okay. This is what roots do. Okay, roots are always sort of in search of water. You can think of roots as like a tree's like arms digging into the earth, like and then the fingers like branching out, trying to find where this water is, right? Kind of doing this thing. And this act of search it nourishes the tree, and it makes it stronger because as this tree is reaching down and it's looking for water and it's shooting out more branches, it's shooting out more sort of like fingers. It becomes more established, it becomes more resilient, it becomes harder to uproot. It sounds kind of paradoxical, but being thirsty is a key ingredient in becoming strong. Let's let right? that second for a second. Right? Being thirsty, shooting, looking for water is actually a key ingredient in becoming strong. Would you describe yourself this way? Are you a thirsty person? Are you looking for water, right? for something that will truly satisfy your soul? Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him, let her come to me and drink. Drink up, because the water I will give you will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. And the reason being is that we're more than just physical creatures. We are embodied souls. To live the good life, we need physical food, yes, but we also need soul food. And I'm not talking like fried chicken, right? Man shall not live by bread alone. That's a good dad I'm sorry. I had to insert it, (laughs) right? Man shall not live by bread alone. But Jesus says on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need both. We need physical food, yes, but we also need spiritual food. We need meaning and purpose in our lives. We need a sense of self and a sense of belonging. We need wisdom and hope and love. You need to know the God whose image you bear. You need God to speak to you. And you need to listen. You need to take that word in. How? keep coming back to this question. How? How do I do that? The answer is relatively simple. It's by going to this word. By going to the scriptures. Going to the Bible. The Bible claims to be the inspired word of God. That every word in it is breathed out by him. That's mysterious. It is on the one hand like a, it's, it's a work of a human author but behind that is another author it's God himself we believe Christians believe that the Holy Spirit is actually involved in the creation and the compilation and the preservation of this book and Jesus himself shared that view he held up the Bible and said every word in this is true it's all reliable it's all true And Psalm one agrees. This is what we need. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. This word law is actually the Hebrew word Torah. Uh, The noun Torah comes from the verb Yara. This is sort of how the Hebrew word or the Hebrew language works. But this word Torah comes from the the verb Yara, which means to throw something, like to to throw a javelin so that it hits its mark. And Eugene Peterson, who's a, a pastor who recently passed away, he says this. He says, all of God's words have this characteristic. They are Torah and we are the target. God's word is not a reference book in a library that we pull off the shelf when we want information. God's words, creating and saving words, everyone, They hit us where we live. It's like he's throwing them at our hearts. Torah represents everything God has to say to us from his word. It's what the prophets reiterate, and it's what Jesus himself ultimately fulfills. We're not just reading this word and quickly forgetting it, but we are to read this and then meditate on it. Uh, Were to take it to heart. Um, again, Peterson writes Meditation is a bodily action. It involves murmuring and mumbling words, taking a kind of physical pleasure in making the sounds of the words, getting the feel of the meaning as the syllables are shaped by larynx and tongue and lips. Right? Isaiah used this word meditate for the sounds that a lion makes. Over its prey. Okay. Again, Psalm 1. This is where I'm getting this from. Okay? Um, blessed uh, is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but whose delight is the law of the Lord. Right. He's desiring this. He's thirsty for us. And he meditates on it day and night. Meditation is like a lion savoring a lamb chop. Or if you're a vegetarian or you don't like this idea of a lion eating a lamb, well, just think of a Jolly Rancher. <laughs> right? Think of hard candy. If you cram too many Jolly Ranchers in your mouth, you're going to choke. You've got to take it slow. You've got to meditate on the Jolly Rancher. You've got to suck on it. You've got to savor it one at a time. And let the flavor sort of roll over your tongue. Get all the flavors out of it. That's the picture that is painted for us here, right? The good life begins when you are thirsty for it, when you desire God's word, and then you take it in, but not all at once, just a little bit at a time, sort of like a Jolly Rancher, holding it in your mouth, sucking on it, savoring it. When are we to do this? Well, not just every once in a while, not just at Halloween. <laughs> do this day and night. The implication being, right, all the time, every day. Let's get practical. You want to live the good life, you need to know where living water is to be found, which means you need to find a Bible, and there's some right there on the table, and they're our gift to you. Take one home with you. Find a Bible. If you don't want this one, find it on your phone. Like, there's three Bible apps, right? They're, they're everywhere, Right? Finding one, I don't think, is the hard part. I think opening it may be, right? So open it up and start to take it in. But don't try to take it in all at once, like read the entire thing cover to cover over a weekend. That's what the Jesus Storybook Bible is good for, right? Reading, like, the leather-bound one is going to take you a long time, but you could read the Jesus Storybook Bible over the weekend. And it'll really give you sort of the forest for the trees. I highly recommend it. But take that Bible on that table or take the one that's at home off the shelf and begin to read it slowly. I think a digestible amount of Scripture is maybe one or two chapters a day. Maybe two is too much. Just, just do one chapter a day. Maybe a psalm or a chapter from the New Testament. Those are good places to start. Right, And read it. Read it in the morning. Savor it. Meditate on it. Is there a word or a phrase that really stands out to you? Right? Hold it. Think about it. What might God be trying to say to you from this? Or is there something there that you want to even say back to him? We'll get there in a minute. But meditate on it. And meditate on it maybe in the morning, maybe around lunch, maybe around dinner time. I think when we start a new habit, it's always helpful to associate it with or attach it to something that we're already doing. Like you're already going to eat food. So if you're already gonna eat sort of bread, why not have a glass of water, right? Why not read that chapter after your meal? Just take out your phone if you don't have your Bible with you and just read it and think about it. And then when you go to lunch, do the same thing. You're just like, all right, on the way to class or in between, in, in between your lunch break, just return to what you've read this morning. Maybe at night, after dinner, before you go to bed, do the same. I mean, it's a chapter. It's not a lot. It's not like, I don't know, you're not reading Harry Potter, right? Sometimes when we read, what we read is amazing. And it feels like what God's trying to say to us is just popping off the page. It's like the equivalent of like a steak dinner. It's just incredible. Other times when we read, it's just kind of meh. Maybe it's like a turkey sandwich. Meaningless, like just look like a bowl of cereal. That's true. I mentioned this to you because whether you're eating steak dinner or you're eating a bowl of cereal, your body's being nourished just the same. Let's acknowledge like one is better than the other, at least experientially. But hey, practically speaking, it's feeding you. And I just want to set that expectation. Like when you start this, like there are going to be times when you read the Bible and it's just like, wow, this is amazing, and other times you're just like, uh, oh, okay. Don't give up. You're getting like. It doesn't have to be steak all the time, right? So turkey sandwiches can do the job too. Bowl cereals, they can definitely do the job too. Have that right expectation, right? We're not expecting steak every time. We're going in thirsty, and we're looking for nourishment. And we know this is where it's found, At our fall retreat, Matt Scott, who was our guest speaker, he talked about having analog time when he wakes up. And what he meant by that is just like non-digital time Before I check my phone, before I read my email, I've got like, he's saying, I've got 15, maybe 30 minutes where it's just quiet, where I can just actually read my Bible and sit with my thoughts and sit with this word and listen quietly to what God might be saying to me and to jot down a few thoughts. I think it's a great habit. I think it's a good thing to maybe at the end of the night do something similar. I mean, there are all kinds of practices and habits that we could talk about, and I hope we do. I mean, in some ways I hope tonight is like a conversation starter. And we can talk about some of these things in more depth, maybe one-on-one or even later tonight. But the good life begins with us thirsty for God's word. It begins when we get his word and his life inside of us. It begins when we open up the scriptures and we listen to what God has to say. But there's another and important dimension to this hidden life with God, right? This hidden support system. We don't just want to get God's word inside of us. We are also meant to give an honest answer. Okay, we want to get his word in. We want to hear what he has to say. But we also want to learn how we can give an honest answer. Because it is, after all, a hidden life with God. It's a relationship. And all relationships require communication. And if there's only one person who's talking, that's not good communication, right? There's got to be some give and take, right? Some back and forth. God speaks to us. He wants you to speak to him, too. The Psalms, which we find right smack dab in the middle of the Bible, we could say at it, its very heart, they train us in conversation with God. They train us to not just talk about God, but to how to talk to God. And there's a difference, right? The Psalms are helpful, but so is Jesus' answer in Luke 11 to the disciples who are asking him, Hey, Jesus, teach us to pray. Teach us to talk to God, how to have this relationship with God that that you so evidently have. When the disciples come and they ask him, teach us to pray, Jesus gives them a prayer that covers all of the bases. But the most significant thing about the prayer that Jesus gives us is not just sort of all the bases that it checks. The most significant thing about it is how it begins. The praying life begins with Father. The first word out of his mouth and the first word out of ours. Father, or our Father, right? Who are in heaven, uh, as the famous articulation goes in Matthew 5. Why is this significant? Well, what we believe about God shapes how we approach him. It shapes how we come to him, what we ask for, how we ask it. If, for example, you believe that God is far off and aloof and that prayer is just sort of like a message in a bottle that we're hucking into the sea that nobody's actually going to find or read, you're not going to keep this up. It's it's going to feel futile and hopeless. If, for example, you believe that God's a boss and kind of a grouchy boss at that, who's always looking for some excuse to fire you, you're going to be shy about coming to him. And maybe when you come to him, you're going to only come to him when you're feeling upbeat and you felt productive. You're never going to come to him when you're feeling down or maybe there's something that you're ashamed of or that you're trying to hide. However, if God is your father, and not just any father, but a good, good father who loves you and who cares about you, the kind of father that Jesus says you have in heaven, well, that changes the entire, that changes everything. I mean, Jesus was famous or infamous for calling God, dad. It was a term of endearment and intimacy and respect. And Jesus invites us to come to his father on the same terms. Everything about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, it was all aimed at this purpose. to to make you a child of God, to bring you back into the family of God. You have lived your whole life, as it were, as a spiritual orphan. And Jesus says, you are orphans no more. I have come to bring you back, to reconcile you, to adopt you into the family of God. So you don't have to live like outsiders anymore. You can live like the insiders you were always meant to be. This is how we are to relate to to God, the God who made us and who saved us, not just as Jesus's dad, but as our father. Jesus saying, he's not just my dad, he's yours too. He's ours. Everything that is mine, it belongs to you too, including this relationship. We have the same sort of access. We have the same sort of love. Y'all tracking? That's That's amazing. At the time of his presidency, Barack Obama was the most powerful man in the world. There were very few people who have access to the most powerful man in the world. And a very few, like an even smaller subset of those who can come to him at midnight and poke him in the ribs and say, I want a glass of water. Not many people can do that. Vice President Biden was not waking up in the middle of the light, poking Obama, asking for a glass of water at midnight. How do you know that? Uh, well, I can be pretty sure. <laughs> not Biden, not the Speaker of the House, not the Queen of England, not Beyonce, right? But his kids could. His kids could come to him at, 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 any, at, 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 at that time. They had that kind of access. And we have that kind of access to, to our Father in heaven. Right? We can poke the most powerful one in the world in the ribs, as it were. Right? The one who doesn't just hold the nuclear codes. He holds like the universe right? in the palm of his hands. And we can come to him at any time. And we can ask him for a glass of water. We can tell him we had a bad dream. This is how God wants to relate to you. That you can poke him in the ribs at me. That you can climb into his lap by the fire. That you can sit with him and talk to him at the dinner table. That you can ride in the backseat of the car and strike up conversation with dad who's behind the wheel. It's kind of like that. Teach us to pray. Jesus says, it starts like this. Our father. Coming as God's kids means also coming as we are. We don't have to pretend, right? We don't have to manufacture emotions. We just need to be ourselves. We just need to be honest. You know, I've I've got a six year old daughter and I think about when I go to Edmonds uh, Elementary School and I pick her up and I ask her, how are you doing today? If Willis had a great day, she's gonna tell you. She's like, it's awesome, right? I got to play Jaguars with my friends and it was like PE for special, it was awesome. Or maybe she had a bad day, and I'm like, "How are you doing, bitch?" She's like, "It was awful. Jabari was mean to me, and it was like veggie lasagna for lunch, which is yuck." Right? She's going to tell you how it is, and we're to do the same. Right? We're to, to if we're going to come to God as His kids, we need to come as we are. We need to come uh, with honesty. And here's where the psalms are really helpful and why we're going to spend time with them like, for the next five weeks. The psalms train us from talking about God to talking to God. Right? The psalmists, the prayers, they're all over the place emotionally and circumstantially. You'll see people running for their life. You're going to see people in the pits of despair. You'll see people on mountaintops singing God's praises and everything in between. What God has given us here is a prayer book for a full life which is to say, a whole life. And God gives us this prayer, book not to make us nice, so much as to make us honest. Not to make us nice, so much as to make us accurate. So that we can have confidence, that we can come to him and we can honestly, honestly express where we are at and what we are feeling before him. Because God is always going to meet us where we are at, but we often miss him because we don't show up as it were, spiritually, where we are really at. We try to be someplace else, and it's not going to work. Putting down roots means coming to God thirsty. It means learning to get his word inside of you, letting him speak into your life, but it also means coming to him as his kids and coming to him as we are, not having to pretend that we're okay when we're not. When we're hurt, we're gonna say, ouch, and when we're happy, we're gonna say, hallelujah. This is what this hidden life with God is going to look like and be like. This is what we want to spend the rest of our time together this semester discussing. How to put down deep roots. And what that rooted life looks like in and across the seasons that we're going to face. And by the end of the semester, I hope that you're actually putting some of this stuff into practice. That we can talk about it. Because I want this RUF to be a community where we can encourage each other in such things. When we do this, when we come hungry and thirsty, when we come to his word, when we come as his kids, when we come as we are, we are primed for prayer and we participate in it. We take in God's word and we learn how to give an honest answer. And this hidden life of God begins to take shape and take root. It strengthens us and it grows us and it gives us life, the good life, the full life, that Jesus promised to all who come to him and follow after him can have. Let's pray.